I'm Jenny Galuzzo, co-founder of The Second Shift. Welcome to our podcast where we talk all things women, work, and well-being, how they intersect, our competing forces, and how to create and maintain personal and professional alignment in your life. Let's do this. Mike Stibe is an old friend and someone who is a truly unique human being. He's like a walking, talking self-improvement book, but like not in an annoying way. He makes it seem so easy to get shit done that it's impossible not to feel inspired by him. Mike is hyper-rational and disciplined. And in this episode, he has super practical advice for anyone who thinks they don't have enough time to blah, 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 whatever, you know the story. He says willpower is bullshit and that it's all about discipline and that creates habit and that creates results, which in turn creates willpower. Enjoy. I have been waiting a long time and excited to be able to ask you all of my probing questions because you are such a unique individual in your love of efficiency, your specific type of productivity, and also just the your sense of humor. So thank you so much for giving me the opportunity and taking the time out of your very highly managed day to talk to the second shift. I'm happy to be here, Jenny. It is my absolute pleasure. You know, Kemp likes to sometimes show us your calendar because I know that you guys share calendars and she'll enjoy showing us the organization of your day and how it's so specifically time boxed and just like what it looks like. And it blows my mind. So again, I feel really honored that you're here with us. Your book, The Career Manifesto, talks a lot about finding the time to invest in your personal development and your career. A lot of the women that we work with are people who are looking to career transition or they are looking to get back into the workplace. 85% of us have children at some phase in life or are taking care of parents. And it's a time of life where it's like just really busy. You talk a lot about finding unaccounted for time, reclaiming your time. How do you do that? What's your advice for people who just feel overwhelmed? Well, Danielle, the first thing I would note is a family calendar is supposed to be a private thing. So hearing that you've seen it is really going to generate some conversations at home. <laughs> but is she showing you off? I just want you to know I that. She's am, so uh, proud of and, you. Kidding, and, and I appreciate it. She so, loves you so much. And it's just so like amazing to see how the pride that fills Kemp all the time about like, look, you. Look at my ridiculous husband. He's scheduled brushing his teeth. So <laughs> exactly. here's the, here's the, the drill in, in, in my, my perspective is sort of productivity just for the sake of productivity is not all that great, right? Like you could listen to Anna Karenina on an audio book at 3x speed, but what's the sense in that? There are things that you do in life to enjoy and to revel in, and there are experiences in life that nourish you. And, and it's important to like create space in your life to have those and to enjoy them, right? Like you could send many more emails while you're with your kids, but it's like, is that really the best time to send many more emails? So that's the first thing I would note is just that, you know, you don't go to heaven for being productive. There's no prize. The prize, though, is when you step back and think about what the things are in your life that either bring you joy or have the kind of impact or creativity that is important to you. 
when you think about the kinds of days or the weeks or months where you're like, that was a good day or week or month, the things that happened, you can be proactive in, in causing them to happen. So an example you referenced, I wrote a book a long time ago. I wrote a book. I wrote that book when I was running a public company and we had two little kids. And it was just like, there wasn't really any time, but it's not true that there wasn't any time. I wrote a page of a book and I timed myself and it turned out that it took an hour to like write it and edit it. So really, if you want to like write a, a decent draft of a book, you need about 300 hours. And if you need 300 hours, that's three hours once a week for two years that you get to take four weeks off. And I found that three hours on Sunday mornings and everybody in the family was super supportive of it. Like daddy disappeared to the attic and I wrote for three hours. And then over, you know, the course of two years, the final manuscript was a byproduct of having set aside that time. I did it that way because if instead you're sort of like, you know, life is crazy. I mean, life is not going to be much more hectic and busy and crazy than when you're running a business and you and your spouse are raising the kids and just like everything's going on. But the truth is like, there's no moment that then comes. You're like, ah, like now everything's super calm and relaxed. And now I can go achieve all those things that were on my list. You have to create time in what is already a busy time by proactively allocating your precious minutes, your calendar to the things that are really important to you. It's discipline, really. A lot of it is discipline. It is having the decision to sit down and time how long it takes you to write that one page and then putting it into your schedule every week. So a lot of people, I think, lack the discipline to do the things that they want to do, even if they have a goal that they've set out for themselves. It's like great to have a goal, but you need to have the actual discipline, the plan, the structure to reach that goal. And it could be anything. It could be like eating healthy. It could be working out. And especially, I think, busy working women often put themselves at the bottom of the list of all of the things that they have to do. And it's very hard to find places to create that space. But you talk a lot about creating new habits and like how much of the habit is just the discipline of doing it, I wonder. How do you find that in your own life and schedule? I think the, um, I don't know, maybe some people have it, but there's this concept of, of willpower, right? That there are just some people like, I don't have it. I don't have the willpower. If you tell me I'm going to work out three days a week, like every morning I wake up, today's not going to be the day. And if you tell me like, uh, you know, have the willpower to eat healthy, and then you create a situation where like the French fries, it's like, yes or no, I'm going to eat the French fries. So I find that I'm only able to sort of successfully, you know, execute the life plan that I want to have if I set up the right behaviors ahead of time. So, you know, what I found is like, Let's take uh, exercise is probably a good example, right? It's like, it's the one everyone feels so bad about. It's everyone's news resolution, I'm going to exercise. And I kept like not doing it. And so finally, I was like, all right, like when you, when you want to like, if you want to create a good habit, you have to like remove friction, right? This is what every tech company has figured out is how to get you to use their product more or click buy by removing all the friction. So I'm like, what is the friction around working out? It's like, you wake up and then you can choose to snooze or not. And then if you choose not to snooze, you got to get up, you got to get dressed, you got to do the whole thing. And you're just like, Ugh. so instead, I don't do this anymore, but to get a jump start, I would get dressed for the gym at night and I would put my sneakers by the door, toothbrush by the door, and I would take my phone, which was my alarm clock, and I put it in the sneaker. So then the alarm goes off. Now you have to get out of bed. You have no choice. I get up, I go to the door. Now I get to the door. I'm literally standing there 
dressed for the gym, holding the phone and the sneakers. Like it's all there. It is now, it would take some willpower to get back in bed at that point, rather than keep going onto the thing. And when you remove friction like that from something that you want to do more of, for me, like I had always wanted to try writing. The removing the friction was there's this block of time that's committed to it every week for the next two years. Suddenly, it's kind of hard not to do the habit that you wanted to set up. And it once it becomes a habit, by the way, like it is easier to exercise seven days a week than four. People don't realize that because if you exercise, it's like, it's like taking a shower. It's just something that becomes part of your day. It's fixed. You never have to muscle up to brush your teeth. You've been doing it every day, two or three times a day for like 40 years. So if you can create a habit like that, then you stop having to think about it. It just happens. Have you always been like this? I've known you for a very long time. Have you always known like that you had a life plan? Like, were you a little kid who set these kinds of routines and put your phone in your socks and no, we didn't have phones, I don't, I don't but like so. that kind of person, like have you always been this person? No, but I've always been, so I've always had a, I don't know, I've had a, a, some level of interest as you do in sort of self-improvement. So you know, at one point in my 20s, I read this book, uh, this sleep scientist at Stanford wrote a book called The Science of Sleep. And I read it, I got to the end of it. I was like, oh my God, like I, I haven't been sleeping enough. I haven't been doing it right. I like, I learned the benefit of better sleep. And then I incorporated that as a habit. And then I read a, like a bunch of the behavioral psychology stuff like Daniel Kahneman and Roy Baumeister and some Paul Duhigg and some of these other guys who all basically just say the same thing. There's no such thing as willpower. There's only good habits. Try to set up good habits. And so each time you, you know, you consume some of this external wisdom, it helps you to structure your day a little better or think a little bit differently about your plan or how you maximize your energy. And so I just, I don't know, I've been fortunate. I've sort of bumped into some of the, some of the right books and some of the right authors and the thought leaders who help you set up your, you know, help you think, think differently about how to set up your life. Do you still eat the same lunch every single day? Like I remember there was a period of time where it wasn't it like chicken teriyaki or like broccoli? Like every day, does that like just streamline things? Do you still do that? Not, it's not every single day, but look, we, we set it up. How many days? I know. I would just, I want to know. Like I want to go through. At our office, we set it up so that Sweet Green would treat us as like a, uh, as a location. So like, if you, like, if you get a half a dozen or a dozen people together who all want enough Sweet Green, they'll make you a destination spot. And then, so in the morning I can just go on the app and say, this is the thing I want. Or I could say like, this is the thing I want every day this week, which I tend to do. And it just shows up at 1230. And when it shows up, it's a salad. So I have to eat it. I would never in the heat of the moment be like, I could eat any amazing food. Why don't you eat this nasty salad? But you got to eat salads because it's good for your gut biome and you need to eat salad. So pre-program a salad. If you order five salads on Monday morning, I guarantee you, you're going to eat five salads this week. And then you don't have to think about it. Okay, walk me through Mike Stipe's day, like a random Wednesday, because you are on like so many boards. You're the CEO of a company. You have two children who I know you're very invested in their life. You are a fantastic husband. You have time to work out every day. You eat healthy. You are like a, I mean, I'm not blowing smoke up your ass because I really feel this way. Like you're really, you're killing it on a, a lot of levels. So I'm just really curious to know, like walk me through your day. You're making me blush. Okay, so you can handle it. My day is like everything's pre-programmed in the calendar, but my day is sort of less interesting than everybody else's day. And what I'd say about everybody else's day is this: so it feels like we don't have any time. Hours are measurable, right? And if you look at a week, and if you committed yourself to sleeping eight hours a day, which I highly recommend, I read the book. Trust me, 
People who say they don't need eight hours of sleep are like climate change deniers. I have no time for them. You need eight hours of sleep. So sleep eight, eight hours a day. If you are ambitious, you probably work, call it 55 to 60, 50 to 60 hours a week is my guess. So that is over the course of seven days, another eight hours a day on average. Eight hours of sleep, eight hours of exercise. Then there's things that you really, really should do. You should work out, you should take a bath, whatever. Add that up, it's like another hour and a half. If you stack up all the things that are like hard-coded commitments, and for me, sleep, exercise, the fact that I have a job and I'm going to put in the hours required to be successful at it are hard-coded, you're left with about five hours. You're left with five hours a day. You have five hours of unprogrammed time every day, 365 days a year. And you know, there's that concept that like in 10,000 hours, you can become an expert in anything. So literally, like, if that's, it's not true, because it's Malcolm Gladwell and he's a complete hack, but that's a different <laughs> podcast. <laughs> pretend it were true. We both know if we did something for 10,000 hours, we'd be pretty good at it. Yeah. And if you were like, I wish I could be a concert pianist. I can't because who has the time? I have a full-time job. You actually you have five hours a day. And when I ever tell this to people, they're like, you might have five hours a day, pal. I don't have five hours a day. And I always say, look, there's this thing on your phone called screen time. Go check it. And screen time is a really tough critic because screen time tells you exactly how many minutes you spent on Instagram today. It tells us exactly how many minutes you spent on Twitter, on the New York Times. Now, the average American spends two and a half hours a day on social media. The average American spends four hours a day watching television. Now, for the most part, people are doing those two at the same time now. So at least they're multitasking. But what I'm articulating is that of the five hours, for most people, it's been consumed by those activities that if you were to look back on a year and be like, was this like a really great year? You wouldn't say, well, I mean, you know, highlight for me was spending 1200 hours uh, on TikTok. Like nobody would think that. Nobody wishes that they spend more time yesterday on social media. But when you haven't programmed your day, when you haven't proactively set up what you're going to do with your time, life interferes and dictates it to you. Because in a weak moment, you're like, oh, I worked hard today. And then, you know, I helped one of the kids with homework. And then we did dinner. And now, so that's two hours. Like, there's three left. What are you doing the last three hours? Like, you know what? I'm going to be productive tonight. I'm going to work on my personal development. But first, like, I'm just like, I'm a little wiped. Let's just put on Netflix. Watch one episode of The Office. And then the next thing you know, if you, like, you experience this, Netflix will be like, are you still watching? Like, you've been watching TV so long that Netflix actually gets worried about you. And then so you're like, oh, my God, it's asked if I'm still watching. You look at your watch, you're like, it's 1130. Now it's 1130 at night. You're not going to get eight hours of sleep. It's going to be harder to get up to go to the gym. You're going to suck at life tomorrow. So what you do is you decide ahead of time, how am I going to use those hours? And one of the things, for example, that I really value, like really, really value is going out to dinner with Kim. We've had at minimum two date nights a week for like 20 years. That's a really, really good use of three or four of those five discretionary hours. Really good use. And one of the things I really enjoy is getting to do the walk with Georgia to school in the morning. And I can't do it every morning, but it's 30 minutes that it's in the calendar which days I can do it and I'm going to do it. So there's more time available to us than we think. If we don't pre-plan that time, then life will interfere and consume that time on our behalf. And when we do pre-plan the time, it doesn't mean you can't still be, like if somebody calls a Pearl Jam tickets, you go, right? You restructure the plan that you had. 
But you do that proactively. What's not going to happen is if you're like, you know, tonight's the night I'm, I've committed every week to developing my blog, for example, for two hours, or every Wednesday night, I'm taking a writing course or whatever it is. Once that time's been committed, it's much harder, especially once you've done it a few weeks in a row, it's much harder not to use the time the way you planned. I totally agree. I think that like time is kind of expansive in that way. Once you've decided that it's there and it's in your life, it like opens up more time for more things. The more free time you have, the less it feels like you've actually had free time. And you know, and it, the opposite happens too. Like, you know, people who are not busy, the so busy. Things, somehow they're like, it occupies, like it'll expands to fit. Like you'll try to make plans with a friend who's not busy. And they're like, oh, I can't do it. Then I have a dentist appointment. I'm like, what? I have a like standing quarterly dentist appointment. I haven't been to in two years. You just schedule it and then you don't go. That's not, that's not being <laughs> talking about. Like, so, you know, when, but when you're really busy and you're jamming, like something that would have taken you so much time, you get in, the, the, science has actually proven this, you get in, you know, in a state of flow. When you are not in a state of flow, when you're like not that busy and then you go to do a thing, it takes about 15 minutes to warm up, to start to reach peak productivity. And if you're not really busy, usually you don't muscle through the first 15 minutes because you don't have to do it right now. So you kind of stop, you put it down and you, you allow yourself to be distracted. You go back to it, you start having to like gear up to peak flow again. If instead if you're like, I'll tell you, like one thing I'll tell you, mornings are magic. Early mornings, meaning before everybody else gets up. If you are a parent, the evenings are not yours, right? The kids occupy a lot of your evening. If you're a knowledge worker, the work that gets assigned all day spills into your evening all the time. You're a social animal, people call off plans all the time. The nights are like full of danger. (laughs) (laughs) The night is dark and full of something, but 5 a.m., nobody bothers you at 5 a.m. And there's nothing good on TV. And like, if you have a drinking problem, you don't want to drink at 5 a.m. Like just 5 a.m. is a time that can only be used for being productive, for doing the things that you commit to and set out to. And if you really, if people are like, I'm not a morning person, you know what? If you go, if you go to bed, if you go to sleep, 5 a.m. minus eight hours every day for two weeks, you're morning person now. You get up at 5 a.m. Okay, let's switch gears. I want to learn more about your CEO style because you in work are very, also have a lot of sort of theories about email, about meetings, about calendar invites, about ways in which you can be more efficient, sort of like cutting out the fluff, cutting out all of the excess time that we use to, I don't know, that just gets wasted at work. And so I'm wondering, what are some of the tips that you have for people who are managers and are managing or are you know, running their own operation? And also like what's worked and do you still do that in your personal life as well? Yeah, I, I guess the first thing is work is often, there's often an assignment, right? I mean, for most of us, the day begins with something that for you know one reason or another, it's been assigned to you. It's a there's a marketing project that needs to be done. There's a strategy pitch that needs to be done. There's a spreadsheet that needs to be. And I find what's really valuable is to get to the essence of why has this thing been assigned? What's the outcome that drives the business forward? Because we were all mistrained by school. Because remember in school, when like an assignment, you were given an assignment and you had to show your work. And then you had to prove you didn't copy it. You got it from 
you, you like you developed your own ideas and you had to footnote it. And like, if the paper was like, they actually told you how long the paper needed to be. Those are absurd concepts in the real world. If you're given an assignment, the assignment is like, identify the size of this potential target market. And someone else has done that work already, copy it and say, this is the answer. Or this is a great example. I had this not that long ago at work. We were in a meeting and someone said, I said, hey, someone, somebody, somebody said in passing, you know, we should call this new product. We should call it da-da-da. I won't get into the, the details of it. It was a harmless, I thought, suggestion. Not a bad, I thought it was a pretty good idea. But the team afterward, a bunch of folks on the team, sort of a couple rungs down, if you would, on the org chart, but like important leaders in my organization, like, oh, it's, that name's the wrong name. Like it's the wrong name for all these reasons. It's actually going to confuse the user. And then they like, they had a few meetings about it and strategized how to solve the fact that like that one of their colleagues had this wrong idea for the feature. And then they created a notion where, you know, what notion is it's like yeah. Google docs, but you have to pay for it. Uh, it's so stupid, but it's just another thing. It's a place where you can go make pretty versions of a Google doc. And it was a pretty version of a Google doc with like the pros and the cons and different alternatives. And then they were like, can we come to this meeting and present this notion board? And the team comes and I was like, so you don't want to call it what I want to call it? They're like, you know, I'm like, why don't you just like shoot me a text and say, we're calling it something else. And I thought about- They wasted so much time. It was early in my tenure. So, and there had been a culture in the organization of like good memos. Like that a good memo was a signal of you having thought really hard about this. Get out of here. Like we are busy. The essence of this problem was don't name it that, name it this. What is the fastest way to get from don't name it that, name it this? Call the guy with the bad idea, me, on the phone, a lost art. I will pick it up and say, we don't want to call it that. We want to call it this. And then don't send me a notion board. I don't have three meetings. And if that doesn't solve it, then say, okay, look, I'm going to go make a notion board and I'm going to have three meetings until I convince you. But the shortest path is to do the thing, not to make the deck, not to, I can't remember the last time I made a PowerPoint, just do the thing. And that saves you so much time. So much. Do you still think that meetings are adult detention? (laughs) To quote you. If you run a good meeting, so a meeting that has been created for a reason, we have to solve this problem. The phone call didn't solve the problem. I need the best of everybody's ideas. We have to debate it and we have to land it. You carve out the right amount of time and you invite just the right people. You send an agenda in advance. If anything needs to be read, you send the pre-read in advance. You lay out how we're going to spend our time in this meeting and what conclusion we're going to get to, what the action item will be, and who will own it. When you hold a meeting like that, like magic happens. If you, instead of a meeting, if anybody ever says to you, oh, you know, we should, uh, we should spend more time. Like there's, it's been great catching up with you. We should have a weekly one-on-one. That person just stole 52 hours of your life every year. It better be the most valuable one-on-one you've ever had. And think about what you can do in 52 hours up to and including taking a week off and like going to Bora Bora. You could do that. Or instead you could have this one-on-one that just got put on your calendar with somebody. So it better be super valuable. I love that you have, because you've, you've taught me this through Kemp. You don't know that you taught me this. That people often respond to emails to confirm things. 
Like if you get a calendar invite or somebody like sends you a thing and then you're like, great, see you there. That one is like just a giant waste of time. And I love that you've identified that. Oh my God. Or like when somebody writes back to you, thank you. Like, I like just consider me permanently thanked. Like your thanks, your silence is thanks enough. Cause then you turn back to your inbox and you look, you're like, oh, 50, 50 emails. Not the best email you can send is not sending the email. On average, for every one email you send, you get two back on average. And then you do that thing. We all do that thing. You're like, oh, I'm so far behind. And stay up. You know, Sunday, I'm just going to carve out five hours and like Sunday from four to nine. You're just like getting ahead of the, getting, catching up on the last week, get ahead of the week. You send out a hundred emails, <laughs> pop it back up Monday morning. You have 200 emails because every one of those emails you sent off came back times two. So what I was like, as soon as I get an email and I start to respond, I'm like, is there a really good reason to send this email? Is this going to create an action that I want to see? And if not, just like, whoosh. and there's nobody, there's nobody in the world who's waiting to see if you respond to their email. They just were trying to clean up a hundred emails in their inbox. They are not like, you see that one email and you think of it from your perspective, like, oh, I've received this email. I need to engage with it. They've moved on. They're not thinking about that email they sent you. They're thinking about the next 99 emails they have to send. Give them the gift of no response. Do you meditate? No, it's stupid. (laughs) Tell me more. You just sit there quietly, not doing shit. Okay. The science on meditation is really convincing until you realize that people who already have good mental health are more likely to carve out the time to meditate. It's all correlation, not causation. They take these big meta studies, how much time do people spend meditating? And then they have good life outcomes. People have good life outcomes are the kinds of people, nobody meditates who doesn't also eat right and exercise and do the other stuff. Now, I shouldn't say it's stupid. It's stupid for me. For others, if Carving out time in your day that could be used for any of a million things. If using that time to sit there with your eyes closed, doing nothing, brings you joy or energy or productivity better than other stuff, it's your life. It's not a contest. Do that and really commit to it and enjoy it. But if you're doing it because, you know, you like read an article in Inc. Magazine that you're supposed to meditate, it's bullshit. Highly, highly successful people meditate. What's that? You know, like highly successful people meditate and do this and you journal and you You write your gratitude. Do you have a gratitude journal, Mike? Oh. (laughs) Tell me about it. But Jenny, I'll tell you that like, look, again, it's causation versus correlation. Like a lot of successful people go to Burning Man too. Burning Man is not making you successful. I'm not fucking going to Burning Man. Excuse my language. But the gratitude thing is real. Like you've got really great, wonderful stuff going on in your life. And there's always some stuff that's not wonderful. You can pick which one to focus on. I wake up in the morning. First thing, I'm like, one. Th- I think of one thing that I'm, I'm excited to wake up for. One thing I'm just happy that I have. Again, you, you don't have to make a whole project of it. The shortest answer is doing the thing. The thing is to be grateful, not to create a pile of like uh, little heart-shaped post-it notes, each with a day of gratitude that you put into a gratitude jar. Like you have to do this stuff. You can just be grateful. I love that. What do you do to unwind? What's your zone out in those five <laughs> hours that you have a day? Do you can have you any explain, moments? Can you clarify the question? <laughs> where, where do you go? I mean, I know what your wife does. She listens to podcasts. And I also know that you listen to podcasts on 1.5, which I think is fascinating that you just, you're efficient in your, even in your podcast listening. Don't you think podcasts are, now this is, this is a very meta conversation. We're in a podcast. Yes, right? we will be. Yes. Talking about 
podcasts, they're just, they're not very dense. Right. The they, good they ones often, let it breathe. Like this not, American, there was a lot of breath. I, I enjoy an audiobook much more. Someone spent years of their life getting the content tight and right. You've got this random guy on here talking about meditating and go and you know whether or not you, you need to plan your exercise. Like yeah, I'm coming up with this on the fly. This could have been, I probably could have done a better job for you if I just wrote four paragraphs, edited it, and sent it to you. So I'm an audiobook guy. Mm-hmm. More than a podcast guy, but when I do read the podcast, I jack up the speed. And then if you get to something that's really interesting, I'll, I'll, I'll bring it back to I love that about that. Those are like the great Mike Stive idiosyncrasies that I just like feed my oh, soul sometimes. But what do you do to like just chill out? If your brain needs to turn off, what do you do? Fun exercising is really regenerative. And I think it was the Buddha or Confucius who said the best meditation is sleep. If you sleep well and at the right times and consistently, sleep feels great. And waking up not having enough sleep like, actually feel, like feels really horrible. And once you've done one and the other, you notice. I get tons of energy and joy and endorphins from time with Kemp and time with the kids. Like, and that I never feel like I'm, I'm not haunted by the things I'm not doing when I'm with them because being with them is the thing that I want to do. That is the thing. I love so, that so much. That is a great is answer. My, I'm mindful of your time knowing that you have a very tight schedule. I have two questions. The first is I just, I hope that this isn't too personal, but I love that you and Kemp have created core values for your family, that you've taken that piece of work and translated it into your family. I think it's a really beautiful thing to do. It's something I've done with my own kids and my own family because it's like, business is business and that's a family that you've built and there's a purpose to it, but building the lives of your children and building them into like productive and happy and successful and lovely people is the most important job you'll have. And I love that you've done that. So if you could just like quickly touch on that, if it's not, you know, too intrusive, I, I, I think it's beautiful. I'll tell you more broadly first, the, the things that work at work, they can work at home too. And we have this weird barrier between the two. And I'll, I'll come back to the values, but I'll, I'll tell you an example. A, a colleague of mine who's wonderfully productive at work was like, like noted at one point like that the getting the stuff done at home and cooperating at home was a struggle because your listeners will appreciate this better than anyone if you're the mom even if you do half of the work, you bear 100% of the cognitive burden. You're always the one. And it's not fair and the world shouldn't work this way. We should just acknowledge it. I always tell new dads, like you're going to think you're doing half and you're going to actually be doing a quarter and you're going to be doing none of the, of the mental load because you have absolutely no idea the next time the kid is supposed to go to the doctor. You have no idea. But then you'll like chip in and bring the kid to the doctor and feel like you're a hero. So, at work, how do we solve that? We solve that by assigning jobs and responsibilities. We have this concept at my company we call the directly responsible individual. Anytime something goes badly at work, it's because it wasn't clear who the directly responsible individual was or because we had the wrong one. Chop up those jobs at home. I'll take care of pick, like the bills, the taxes, the reimbursements for healthcare, or who's in charge of just being on top of the calendar for the kids. If we're both kind of on it, then nobody's on. Or in fairness, the mom is on it and not the dad. So chop up the jobs. 
And if you, and so I've had numerous colleagues now who brought the like the concept of the DRI home. And I have two colleagues, of course, at two different jobs who've instituted a weekly one-on-one with their spouse, where they walk through the calendar for the week. They walk through who the directly responsible individuals are for different ongoing activities, responsibilities in the home. Now, Kim and I spend a ton of time together. We don't have to, we, we, don't, we don't have a one-on-one in the Stott family. We do have the family calendar and we do have clear sort of lanes of responsibility. And I've even found it's like really helpful to acknowledge who's going to make this call. Because sometimes think about some of the big decisions, like what school is your kid going to go to or this or that, or, you know, are we, do we buy the apartment or not? You could like get like decision lock over something. There's a number of times where I've acknowledged, like I have a say, I have an opinion, but ultimately I don't have the vote. And it just allows, I think it allows things to move faster and, you know, without a lot of the tension that can come from feeling like one has to convince the other. And, you, you know, I married somebody because I trusted her and trust her judgment. And so I'm happy to, to trust her judgment on, on some things that I may have a strong opinion on, but her opinion in the end is probably going to be better. So, and then back to family values. I think companies are better when they have values, they have a mission. The second shift is, is so impactful, not only because of the marketplace you've built, but because where it came from. It came from a mission to help make work work for other women. And so that is what makes it so powerful. So at home, we say, I had read this interview, I think it was with David McAuliffe, and he's studied leaders for centuries. And he said, um, leaders over the centuries. And he said, the pattern to me is a good leader works hard. He said the three things, he's like, an, he's like, he was like an 80 year old historian. He goes, leaders do three things, work hard, take care of your men, be a man. It's like a very manly way to say it. We translate that in our own family. Like to me, that really landed. It is hard work, taking care of others and being brave. And so we've, we've said those three things to the kids since they were little. And then when like a behavior issue comes up or a teachable moment comes up, it's not just, hey, don't do that. Hey, don't do that to your sister. You anchor it back in, you know, in this case, was that, did you work hard? Do we work hard in this family? Did you work hard? If you worked hard, you did the right thing. And so when you can anchor it back to values, just like at work, uh, at home, I find it works. Uh, it works great. And if you've got systems that work at work, if calendaring and setting up repeat, recurring meetings or having clear owners and responsibilities or a joint action item list, whatever those things are that make you productive at work, they can make you productive at home. You just have to put the systems in place. And it's kind of, if you think about it, it's kind of weird that we would spend like 50 or 60 hours a week with all these systems for productivity and then come home and be like, ah, let's see what happens. So my last question, and I think you just answered it, but you can just give me like, you know, a Mike pithy and very Mike Stivey response. How do you make work work for you? I'm going to decline your invitation to be pithy, but I appreciate it. And we're running out of time here. I would say it's in kind of three parts. Like, there's a purpose to what you do in life. There's a purpose to you being in this life. Like there's something you're going to get out of it. There's something you're going to give to it. There's lining up all your activities, your systems, whatever it is, in the direction of achieving that purpose. And then there are the actions that you take to achieve it. And if it's to be a great mom, what is the definition of that? If it's to be a great dad, what is the definition of that? What kinds of things and activities are going to be the ones that help you to be the best mom or dad? And then what are the actions that you're going to layer into your calendar or your to-do list, et cetera, where you achieve it? So for me, like if work's just about showing up and doing assignments and getting a paycheck, 
it lacks that purpose and that direction. It's just a list of actions. When you're just banging through a list of actions, they're not always going to be the right ones. They're not always going to get you the outcome that you want. If instead you can always bring it back to, you know, what's my personal or what's this family or what's this team's mission and set of values? What's our plan to get there? It may be a month long, a year long, a multi-year plan. And what are all the actions that are going to add up to that? I love it. That's how I make work work. Thank you, Mike, for making this work for us today. Oh, it's my yeah. pleasure. I love you and I love the shift. And, and so they see you do this for your audience. And I would say if anybody sort of watches this or listens, sort of needs advice or anything, I'm easy to find online. Just slide into the DMs and I can always help. Don't email him. He doesn't like email. <laughs> we've, we've learned. I'm not give, I'm not Don't email, email him. Hit me up on LinkedIn or Twitter or something. Take care, Mike. Thank All you. All right, Jenny. Bye. Thank you so much for joining the conversation. For more, you can follow along at thesecondshift.com. Please rate, review, subscribe, and help us make work work for you and for all women.